only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. Scripture reading for the sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Romans is book 6 in the New Testament, just after the four Gospels and Acts. And you'll find this on page 948 in the Blue Pew Bible. Hear now the word of our Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For do you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, Revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of our God. Let's ask the Lord to bless us as we come to his word. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit that inspired this word is the Holy Spirit that fills us by Jesus Christ and Spirit that brings light to this word and brings it home to our hearts that we might believe it and live it out in our lives. So, oh Lord Jesus, bless us now as we seek to come after this word, to submit to it, to give ourselves in faith to what you have said to us. Bless us, for we ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, some have said that this passage is, has caused more problems than any other passage in the whole of Scripture. Uh, they, whether that has happened or not, or we could make an assessment, it does give you some people's opinion of the effect of this passage. Uh, some have even thought that it seems so out of place for Paul that it was written by somebody else, or that it has no connection even to its context. It's been used in every way. It's been used terribly to justify the most terrible things done by governments. It's been uh, 
held forth on the left and the right. And so it's important that we come to it in its context and not only its immediate context, but the overall biblical context of a passage like this and see what God has to say to us. Uh, This passage, if you're new uh, to our study, we've been in Romans for, what, now two months, I think? Um, Everybody's laughing because I think we're in our uh, third year here, beginning in September, but we hope to be through by this year. We'll see about that. But uh, the whole first part of Romans, uh, chapters 1 through 11, is really summarized in a way in verse 1 of this of chapter 12 by saying, by the mercies of God, by all that I've said thus far about the mercy of God and God's salvation, now let's give ourselves up to God. And so here comes what many would say, of course, is the practical section, the therefore. If this is what God has done for us, how should we then live? And so after talking about how we should give ourselves up to God and be transformed, he speaks of our gifts being used in the church, which shows how critical the church is in Paul's thinking. The very first place, as you give yourself up to God, you spend yourselves for God, people, God's people. And particularly in verse 9 of chapter 12, he speaks of love. And so he first talks about our relationship to God's people in verses 9 and following. And then verse 17, our relationship to the enemies of God. First it's the people of God, then the enemies of God. And now it's to the authorities that are over us. God's authority. So God's people, then God's enemies, and now God's authorities. But it flows as we're going to see, and it fits so tightly with what Paul has said in verse 18, for instance, as living peaceably with every person. Or in verse 17, do what is honorable in the sight of all. And this has immediate political ramifications, especially there in the Roman Empire. And as he has just said, don't take out vengeance and don't execute wrath. When wrong is done to you, then he turns around and says, it's the stake that executes God's wrath. So it's tightly woven into this passage. And even as Paul talked about love in verse 9, he returns to that subject right after this. So this is in the context of how we love those around us. It's not divided from our life, as we're going to see. It's not isolated from our giving ourselves up to God. And so part of your sacrifice to God, part of your being transformed by the renewing of your mind, is your relationship to the state. This isn't an ill-added thing. It's embedded right in the middle of our responsibility as we give ourselves up to God. Now, the first thing we're going to see, and we'll draw three applications from this central point, because this is what Paul says over and over in these seven verses, is that the governing authorities are established by God. He just says it in so many ways here. Now, of course, right off the bat, after we have seen such tyranny uh, and such evil in terms of government in the 20th century, And into the 21st century, we begin to question, could this really be true? And so we're going to to address that as we get into it. But uh, Paul is clear that those who are in authority have been put there by God, no matter who they are. 
and that God has a purpose no matter who it is. Now, notice how he he begins by saying, be subject to the authorities, and then he gives the reasons. There is no authority except from God. You might recall Jesus' own words to Pilate, who, who talked about his authority, and Jesus says, you would have no authority unless it was given to you from above. Now, just think of this. Here's Pilate. He's about to do a very evil thing and wash himself clean, so to speak, of of executing Jesus. But Jesus says, the authority that you have to do that, it came from above. It's not yours. It came from, from God. And then he says, and again, in a different way, those that exist have been instituted by God or ordained by God is another translation, to be put into place by God. And so he draws the conclusion in verse 2, if you resist these authorities, you resist what God has appointed. Now, you can't see it in the ESV, but this word appointed is related to the word of being instituted. So if you try to put those together, you'd say those that have been instituted by God, whoever resists the authorities resists God's institution. Okay. Or if you use the word ordination, have been ordained by God, you resist God's ordinance. So it's specifically God's thing that is there, is what he's saying. It is God's uh, thing, this government that God has put into place. And as we'll see, he's done this for the to, to keep evil at bay. It's, it's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing, generally. And has been to to uphold order. But there's no doubt about what Paul is saying here. And then he, after saying rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad, don't have, uh, don't disobey them because then you will receive uh, judgment. Notice verse four. He is God's servant for your good. Now, in the original, God is emphasized. He's God's servant. For you. And then it says it again in verse 4. And again, God is emphasized. He's God's servant. So don't miss that, Paul says. Underline it. God's servant. And the word servant here is diakonos, from which we get deacon. Or in scripture, I'm a minister of the gospel, a deacon of the gospel. It's the same word. And so I'm a minister, a deacon, our deacons, we all are deacons. Jesus called himself a deacon, a servant. And he says that these authorities are God's deacons, God's servants. And in the, in verse four, he says he's an avenger who carries out God's wrath. Now, in verse four and verse five, the original doesn't have gods there. And I don't think it should have been put here in the ESV. Actually, here the NIV is more literal. Go figure. But um, it is more literal and, and just reads uh, punishment. But it, pro- it he means by this that it is uh, you'll receive the punishment from that authority. But the implication is this is God's punishment that's being brought to you. Because he is God's servant bringing this punishment to you. And even that this is an anticipation of the final judgment of God. It's a mediation of God's order and God's punishment and an anticipation of that which is to come. The implication is this, that if, and and by the way, when it says uh, that 
a, a wrongdoer or one who uh, continues to, uh, when he says on the wrongdoer, it means one who continues to do this, has a set mind against the government. It's not like if you mess up once, that's it, so to speak. But it's, it's one who, with an unrepentant heart, continues to go against the government and does not recognize it as being under God. And in that way, it anticipates what will happen if this person, in an unrepentant way, continues to rebel against God's authority. Judgment will come in the final day. And so, it is ultimately God's uh, judgment that is instituted here. And then again in verse 6, if that were not enough, he uses a different word, one that usually is associated with priests, but it also is... uh, indicates public officials in verse 6 ministers of God we get the word liturgy from this word so he's a liturgus he is a minister of God and and, and Paul uses this in chapter 15 to speak of himself that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so it's remarkable that Paul would say I am this minister of God, and he turns right around and has no qualms in saying, and the government is this minister of God, ministering God's rule over us. No less, no different, but just in different spheres. No less a minister, but just in a different sphere. And so government in this way represents God's resistance to evil in this world and should represent God's resistance to evil against this in this world. It, and it, it stands against evil and is supposed to be then a bulwark against demonic powers. A bulwark against demonic powers. But when we see it taken over by demonic powers, we know that the government itself is not fulfilling what it's even called to do. Because Paul here says that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do what is good and you will receive approval. He is God's servant for your good. He's avenger of evil and it means evil in the sight of God. An avenger of that kind of evil. And this is rooted, this whole idea that the government is founded by God is rooted in Jewish thinking. Paul is simply expressing what uh, the whole of the scripture had held forth. In Isaiah 45, Cyrus, who was going to act on behalf of Israel, the Lord says, this is my anointed. Strange words that he would use. The the word of an anointed king or anointed priest, uh, even the Lord Jesus is the anointed one. And now Cyrus, Cyrus is anointed. He speaks of how in Jeremiah 27, he's given these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. This is God's act, God's sovereignty that put Nebuchadnezzar in control. There is a repetition of a phrase in Daniel chapter 4. 
I'll just give you one of them in verse 17. The sentence is by the decrees of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will and sets it over the lowliest of men. And it continues three more times in Daniel 4 to make this statement. He gives it to whom He will. He rules the kingdom of men. In Daniel 2, it says, He removes kings and sets up kings. Later in Daniel 2, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. But it is God that has given that to you. And so... The command to subject ourselves to the government is because there's this direct line that he draws from God's sovereignty putting into place the government that they were under at that point. Now, several things we want to draw from this. First is that our submission must connect the dots between government and God. And perhaps this is one of our chief failings. Most of us probably are law-abiding citizens because we're here and we're not somewhere else, maybe, behind bars. We all are, or some of us used to be and now aren't anymore. That's fine. But we, most of us, to to tell you, go out and obey the laws, you're going to say, well, I pretty much try to obey the laws. Now, we can talk more about different issues as we're going to, but here's the thing I want to talk about is don't compartmentalize your life and think that when you pay taxes, this is not a direct encounter with the living God. That when you encounter government, when you encounter the authorities that are over you, You are encountering an opportunity to do the will of God, to fellowship with God, to know His presence, and to please Him in what you do in regard to those authorities. So we must avoid isolating our lives in a kind of Greek or Gnostic fashion to say, well, this is unspiritual for us. It's just something we have to do. Rather than this be part of your giving yourself up to God as a living sacrifice and being transformed. The world doesn't recognize that the government comes from God, has its authority from God, and that we honor it and give it all that Paul tells us to give it here because it is God's servant. That's our renewed mind. We see God's providence. We recognize that providence. And we honor God in honoring uh, the laws of the land. Now, again, we'll talk about in the next point, what if they command us to do something disobedient to God? But we're talking about just the basic law, the basic general understanding of the authority that God has given us, an authority that by and large... uh, enforces the good things as in don't steal, as in don't lie in court, as in don't harm one another bodily, as in don't commit rape, etc. We know what happens when this order breaks down, when anarchy and chaos breaks out. We've been shocked to see what a mob can do. And, And those people up to that point we're just kind of normal people, you know, living their lives, going for, and then suddenly 
A flood occurs, and now everybody's a thief, right? A fire occurs, and suddenly people are at each other's throats sometimes. And what happens when anarchy breaks out? So we we recognize this good gift of God that in general holds us in line. As he says here, it is for your good. And this means not a servant to do you good, but a servant so that you will do good. That's the indication there. It's an encouragement to all of us to do good to our neighbor, to do good to one another. Now... Taxes certainly are one of the hardest things. And, and several commentators pointed about this is probably the most invasive and most uh, annoying, you know, and grating part of governmental uh, involvement is, is paying taxes. And Paul specifically deals with that in this passage, doesn't he? In fact, some think that this is the climax of the passage because of the particular issues that were facing the Romans. We read from uh, Tacitus and others that the year 57, when this was written, uh, was leading up to tax reform in in, uh, 58. So this was a seething issue in Rome at this point. And so here is Paul saying, in the midst of this issue, in the midst of the controversy, you don't fail to pay your taxes. And also in Rome, the Jews and apparently Christians with them had been thrown out of Rome and now were coming back into Rome. And and certainly it was critical that there be no cause to bring about further uh, injustices or further... uh, dispersion of the people of God there in Rome. And so he's, he's talking to a group of people that are basically oppressed at the mercy of a government that can do really almost anything it wants to uh, within its laws. And we, they found soon that Nero, who at this point was under the care of some other people because he was so young, of course, would break out in the 60s in some terrible ways. But that hadn't occurred yet. Um, But even in this situation, uh, Paul is talking about the care with which they must live. And we'll we'll get to that here in a second. But I I want to just connect you with that idea, this is my obedience to God. Uh, One interesting area that, uh, and I'm not saying this is the big one, this is really a small one, but uh, just to hear people talk about seatbelts, for instance, you know. Like, what does the government think they do and tell me whether to wear a seatbelt or not? I'm not going to do it. You know, this kind of attitude. Well, first of all, it's interesting in the Old Testament that houses were, uh, it was commanded that you build a parapet around the roof of your house because people were on the roofs a lot in in those days, kind of used it as a porch or as another floor, as a storage place. But you were commanded to have a wall or a fence around. You might think, who's they to tell me whether I can put a fence on my house or not? You know, well, you're commanded to. Why? For the safety of other people. So interestingly, sometimes the things we say, we don't even realize, well, the Bible itself upholds that idea of protecting life. The sixth commandment itself, it says that we are to protect one another's life. Not only do we not take one another's life, but we're to promote life and protect life. And so many times the laws that sometimes we chafe under, we'll find there's even a biblical basis. Even biblical principles are found in those laws. 
And certainly it's part of our obedience to God. That's why he says here, not only because of wrath, not only because, well, I'll get punished, but he says, for conscience sake, right? For conscience sake. Because it is a matter that you know God has given these laws and you're obeying God or not in this thing. So for that sake, make it a spiritual matter and make it a time of joyful obedience to God, just like you would when you're praying or you're reading the Word or you're doing some uh, merciful thing within the church. This is part of your obedience to God. No different, just in a different area. But then, of course, the question arises. We'll have to deal with this a little more briefly, but what happens when uh, the government stands against God? Well, the interesting thing when it says to submit yourself to the governing authorities, there's the recognition that this governing authority is under God. And it states that it is a servant of God. And one has written this. This is a a demotion of arrogant and self-devonizing rulers. Okay, A demotion of those who would say, I am God, which the state there tended to say is that Caesar was God. And so this is a demotion saying, no, they're not God. They are not divine. They are servants of God. And as we submit ourselves to to this body, this authority, we recognize a higher authority as well. And conscience works both ways. For conscience sake, I give myself to the obedience and submission But if it commands me against that higher authority, then with this same conscience, I must disobey. I must turn against what they command me to do. And so they are not divine. They owe God allegiance. They will be called to task by God. Even this uh, Jewish idea that's rooted in the Old Testament and in Jewish writing states that this, these are the governments that God has put into place and God will call them to account. So there's this sense that, look, we submit to you, but if you begin to command us to do that which is against God, we do not give ourselves to you. And you will be called account in judgment for what you do in, in the way of promoting evil. This is part, part of Paul's world of thought so that conscience works this way as well. For instance, in Proverbs 16, verse 12, it is an abomination to kings to do evil. The throne is established by righteousness. You see, if you take Romans 13, you might think, well, whatever the government does, nobody cares because they're the government. No, not at all. It is an abomination for kings to do evil. We're told repeatedly in Proverbs, we don't have time to read the passages, but in every way we're to turn away from evil, to hate evil, to stay away from evil men, and and to see that all evil causes destruction. This is true in government as well as on an individual level. So we hold that forward and say, this, this is true up and down. It's not just true individually. It's true as, as communities. It's, it's true as a political body. That when evil is done, the scriptures say, for instance, in Proverbs 22, 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity and the rod of his fury will fail. 
Proverbs 20, verse 8, A king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. By steadfast love, his throne is upheld. And so it continues to talk throughout Proverbs of the call to kings to judge righteously and not according to evil. And so in history, uh, certainly both in the Scriptures and outside of the Scriptures, there have been so many examples of those who have uh, refused to obey government. You go back to the beginning of Exodus chapter 1. The Hebrew uh, midwives were told that when you see a son born uh, in the Hebrew, for the Hebrew women, uh, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, he shall live. Notice, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Put those two things together. They feared God, therefore they disobeyed. They disobeyed. They would not be a party to murder because they were directly being commanded to do that which is evil. And they refused it. They would not participate. They even lied and said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they're vigorous and give birth before we get to them. That wasn't true. But it protected those babies. They did not deserve the truth. And so they protected them, much like the Jews were protected by so many uh, during the Holocaust. If, If the Nazis came to a house, are there any Jews here? No, they're not. They're right upstairs, of course. But they, didn't be a, they would not be a party to that murder. They would not be a party to wickedness. In Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that his subjects fall down and worship his golden image. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no, not doing that. And that's why they ended up in the fiery furnace, because they wouldn't do it. And then in Daniel uh, 6... King Darius made a decree that for 30 days, nobody should pray to any God or any man except himself. And I love this. Daniel opens his window, (laughs) kneels in front of it so that everybody knows I'm going to be praying to my God. I just, just let you know, I'm not obeying that. And of course, you're familiar in Acts 5 when the Sanhedrin tells the apostles that you must not preach anymore in the name of this man. And they said, we will obey God rather than man. We will obey God rather than man. And so, uh, Stott gives an example in South Africa when uh, Hendrik Vervoort, as Minister of Native Affairs the year before he became Prime Minister, announced the Native Laws Amendment The church clause would have prevented any racial association in church, school, hospital, club, or any other institution or place of entertainment. That is, you will not, you will not have racial association in the church. Okay? So if our government declared that, what would we say? We'd say, we'll have any kind of racial association God commands and 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 provides for us. The Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town at the time, a general scholar, 
called Jeffrey Clayton. He decided with his bishops, although with reluctance and apprehension, that they must disobey. He wrote to the prime minister that if the bill were to become law, he would be unable to obey it or to counsel our clergy and people to do so. By the way, he says, the following morning, he actually died, perhaps under the pain and strain of civil disobedience. But he would not obey. So we, we see that this idea of conscience and respecting it as coming from God, also we see its place under God. And while we give it all honor, and even as we seek to obey it, we see this as part of our fellowship with God and our honor to God. By that same heart, when it stands against God and commands us against God, we must turn away. Many of you are reading or have read Bonhoeffer's biography, which I'm reading right now. And that is part of the whole issue that he faced. And he stood against so many in Germany who supported Hitler in standing against the evils of the Third Reich. And finally, I want to encourage us that as we submit from the heart, as we resist if there is evil commanded... Uh, so we see our place in promoting the, the uh, advance or, you say, the well-being of governing authority by prayer and by our lifestyle. The obedience is called for because he has already said in chapter 12, live peaceably with all, and that includes the governing authorities, you see. It doesn't exclude that. As far as it is possible Always live at peace with the governing authorities. If you can, and there's a, there's a division in your conscience when they're calling you to do that which is wrong, yes, but as, long, as far as you can, he says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And do what is honorable in the sight of all. And so we, we seek to live in an honorable way in a society that regards obedience in this way as an honorable thing. But not only this, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter, it's very interesting how he places the command to be subject to every human institution. He says in verse 12 of chapter 2 in Peter, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There were so many rumors you know, that they ate, they were cannibals because of the Lord's Supper, that because they were brothers and sisters and, and were affectionate with one another, that there was incest. All of these rumors running around about the church. And he says, keep your conduct honorable so that their opinions will be turned around as they see your good deeds and they glorify God. The very next sentence is this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the emperor, supreme, or the governors, etc. And then he returns to the subject that uh, you would do good, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So embedded in this command to make known and, and glorify God by your behavior, right in the middle of it is submission to governing authorities. So it's part of our witness for Christ. It's part of glorifying God in this world. And not only that, but we even uh, pray for the well-being of our government. Jeremiah 29, when they were uh, going to be scattered, the 
people of Israel, he says, and you may be familiar with this, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. To identify with, to seek the welfare of the city, to seek its good by the way we live, by the way we work, by the way we involve ourselves in things like the school. To me, this is a great example that we're following. Trying to seek the welfare of our city by our city school that's right down the street. And we're mentoring there and preaching the gospel there. That's at least an example of seeking the welfare of our city. In Timothy, and I close with this quote and then a prayer of Clement. Timothy chapter 2, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And let me give you this example of Clement uh, in the early centuries of the church. And we close with this, just as an example of the kind of things that we can be praying as we seek the welfare of our city, our state, our nation. Guide our steps to walk in holiness and righteousness and singleness of heart and to do those things that are good and acceptable in your sight and in the sight of our rulers. Yes, Lord, cause your face to shine upon us in peace for our good, that we may be sheltered by your mighty hand and delivered from every sin by your outstretched arm. Deliver us from those who hate us wrongfully. Give concord and peace to us and to all who dwell on earth, as you did to our fathers when they called on you in faith and truth with holiness, while we render obedience to your almighty and most excellent name and to our earthly rulers and governors. You, O Lord and Master, have given them the power of sovereignty through your excellent and unspeakable might that we, knowing the glory and honor which you have given them, may submit ourselves to them in nothing resisting your will. Grant them, therefore, Lord, health, peace, concord, and stability that they may without failure administer the government which you have committed to them. For you, O Heavenly Master, King of the ages, thus give to the sons of men glory and honor and power over all things that are in the earth. Do, O Lord, direct their counsel according to what is good and acceptable in your sight, that they, administering in peace and gentleness with godliness the power which you have committed to them, may obtain your favor. Let us pray. Lord, bless us that we will live out our new life in Christ and that we will be living sacrifices, Lord, given up to your will in all ways as we relate to our brothers and sisters, as we relate to those who hate us and, against, and are against us, as we relate to those who are over us, even those that you have put into place that are your servants for good. Oh, Lord, bless us with patience when that is altogether not perfect at times. And bless us with wisdom when we need to sound a prophetic protest as we are given that kind of opportunity in this country that many do not have in the world. Give us grace that we will stand for truth and justice. And we use all the means that we have legally uh, by, to, to, to stand for justice and righteousness. And Lord, when the time comes when we must protest, when there must be civil disobedience, when there must be 
uh, a disobedience of the commands of this country or another country where we may live. Give us grace to do this with wisdom and humility and yet to give ourselves up to our God that we will say with the apostles, we must obey God rather than man. Give us this grace for your name's sake. Amen. Pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?